Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here, and I have a really special guest um, with us today, Professor Robert Thurman, who I just simply can't wait to um, discuss a number, I think, of really compelling topics. But let me start, as I always do, by introducing uh, Dr. Thurman with a bio, and then we'll just jump right in. So Robert Thurman holds a PhD from Harvard University. He is the J. Tonkapa Professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Studies from the Department of Religion at Columbia University. I'm, I'm an emeritus now. Oh, emeritus. Oh, thanks for the correction. <laughs> Dr. Thurman is also president of the American Institute of Buddhist Studies, a nonprofit affiliated with the Center for Buddhist Studies at Columbia University, and dedicated to the publication of translations of important artistic and scientific treatises. Time Magazine shows Professor Thurman is one of his 25 most influential Americans in 1997. And the New York Times said Thurman is, quote, considered the leading expert on Tibetan Buddhism, a leading American expert on Tibetan Buddhism, end quote. After learning Tibetan and studying Buddhism, he became a Tibetan Buddhist monk and was the first Westerner to be ordained by his holiness, the Dalai Lama. He is the author of many books on Tibet, Buddhism, his holiness, the Dalai Lama, art, politics, and culture. As part of his long-term commitment to the Tibetan cause, at the request of the Dalai Lama, Thurman co-founded Tibet House U.S. in 1987 with Richard Garrett Philip Glass, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and renaissance of Tibetan civilization. Tibet House recently founded the Menlo Retreat in Dewa Spa in the Catskill Mountains to advance the healing arts and wisdom of Tibetan and Asian medicine. So, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. And there are so many things I want to talk about, but I do want to mention just briefly to our audience that, that one of the reasons Bob is so graciously um, taking the time to speak with us is that I am presenting a week-long program at his center in upstate New York, MEMBA, in the, at the end of May. We're about to um, advertise that on our site. And Dr. Thurman has very graciously agreed to give the keynote opening um, address and join us for part of this event, which I'm extraordinarily excited about because he's a, a leading voice not only in the world of Tibetan Buddhism and, and the West, but also uh, one of the uh, translators of the legendary Tibetan Book of the Dead. And so before we turn to those topics, um, Bob, with your kind permission, sure, sure. I, I want to start with just some general um, comments from you because, you know, because of your stature, in your longevity in this field, you are you are absolutely truly a pioneer in the in the literal and cultural translation and transplantation of Tibetan Buddhism in America. Speak to us for just a second, if you would, um, about you know you could say the state of the union of Buddhism in, in the West and in particular Tibetan Buddhism. How how do things look from your perspective? I mean, what, what can we be concerned about and what can we be optimistic about? just in terms of the state of the union of Buddhism in America altogether. So let's start with right. that. Okay, great, sure. <clears throat> well, I was, um, when Time Magazine did a thing about Buddhism comes to America, very, um, a few years ago, I forget how long actually, uh, they called me the Jeremiah of the American Buddhists. <laughs> because uh, I was not into this thing. There was a picture on the cover of Brad Pitt wearing a Tibetan jacket in his Heinrich Hara role right. for, for that movie in the 90s. Seven years uh, in Tibet. Seven years in Tibet. And um, 
And so they were saying, Buddhism sweeps into America, all this kind of thing. And then I was saying, no way. <clears throat> it's still it's still very remote, actually, from America. It's uh, beginning to make an impact and beginning to be of service, you could say, I, I said. But you can't say that it is really a big thing here in America now, other than the ethnic communities of people who are Buddhist from, from birth and who have immigrated to the America. Why is that? Because there are two things that are kind of cardinal for Buddhism, and this still remains the case. And one of them is that the multi-life perspective. Yeah. We've all had infinite previous lives. We, as individuals, we are carry genes, yes, but we also carry our soul gene, you could call it. They do kind of call it that, uh, esoterically. And, uh, and we uh, have our own choice of life forms. And we have done many of them before, and we're now human. And then we will have, we're threatened with the, with the probability of more future lives. So this sort of has a background reality sense. And I don't make it a mystic belief. I consider it a mystical belief to believe that you can be nothing just by dying. Since there's no evidence that nothing is there. <laughs> and it's not a place you can go to. And so you could, we know we go to deep sleep, but we always wake up. And um, so we don't have any evidence of that. I consider that mystical. The no. multi-life thing is the more default sort of situation that everything in nature is a continuity, law of thermodynamics, you know, conservation of energy, all this sort of thing. That's the default view. But that is not the main view in America. So therefore, Buddhism doesn't really have a start, you could say. Buddha's science, Buddha's scientific teaching, doesn't really have a much purchase in America because of that. The second thing which relates to that is monasticism. Yeah. And we do have Catholic monasticism, uh, but uh, it's, it's not the dominant thing because the Protestant ethic dominates the industrial American society. And that is sort of no, no lunch if no work, no work, no lunch, no, no free lunch. And the idea of someone being a dropout and having a lifelong study scholarship <laughs> because they want to attain nirvana is not really going to appeal to the Congress, the president, <laughs> the mayors of the cities or whatever you will, corporations. They don't really get it. And uh, so those two things, the existence of a free sangha, a community where people can drop out into and be supported without any student loans, to study lifelong, which will include meditating and other things, ethical behavior, but also a lot of learning is involved. And we don't have that. And we don't have the multi-life perspective that makes, you know, that is so critical in choosing how to spend a human life. That's the background. You know? So I was always saying that. However, uh, having said that, let's say one other thing. I consider Buddhism in America now to be of good service in the sense that there's this old mindfulness craze and people are taking it come kind of superficially, uh, but then nevertheless it helps them become more aware of how their mind works, about their own mind, that is. Not, not some scientific study, but actually engaging their own mind and figuring out how to, how to surf the energies of the mind. The emotions and the ideas and the, et cetera, and the fears and the 
and their happinesses and so on. So that's really valuable, even though in many cases it is not sort of the full treatment, you could say. It's still very, very valuable that that is becoming so desirable by people. This is like the yoga movement where many people have a much better time in their old age with less arthritis and less this and that and bad digestion and bad diet and so on because they begin to get into yoga. But a lot of them just do it, you know, to pick up girls or to be like a calisthenic or something and they don't think about anything much mental involved with it. But still it helps. It still helps. So that's one really great service. Another really great service, which I think is a topic close to your heart, is that I think the awareness of death has become more open and less hidden. Yep. And I think Buddhist, Buddhism can take some credit for that in the, in, because of the Book of the Dead, so-called wrongly titled Book of the right. Dead, and, uh, and because of its way of connecting with the hospice movement and the whole kind of reevaluation re of the role of medicine and uh, this kind of thing. And so I think that's another really good thing about it. And then, you know, the people who are here from Japan and China and Vietnam and, and Cambodia and wherever they've had to flee from because of the disruption of the planet going on everywhere, wars and so on, they are bringing their own versions of Buddhism with them and they're practicing them in their own communities as natural things. And the bigger presence of those people is very helpful, I think, in America increasing our sense of diversity and increasing our sense of, you know, not being the center whole, the only main way that everybody has to live in the universe and so on. And I think that's also very, very good. And it could be, you know, with the work of Tupten Children in Washington State, Pema Children in Newfoundland um, or Nova Scotia, wherever she is, these two great nuns are actually beginning to found Buddhist mendicant hideouts, you know, like nunneries. We, we use the Christian language, but they're always a little different in Buddhism. But anyway, they're beginning to found them. And so there is a tiny beginning of a Buddhist monasticism, you could call it, happening here in America. And that's also a good thing. So, um, so generally, um, that's it. That's what I would say. And, yeah. um, and in that light, you know, in my elder age, one of the things that I'm most focusing on, I just want to say up front, I recently went to Al Gore's Climate Reality Project training in Minneapolis. And now that I'm an emeritus professor and have a little more, or should have a little more time, um, because I think that the older generation must really make a special effort now, because uh, we'll be dead, but our grandchildren will be really suffering, climate refugees, if this goes on. And so I couldn't think, I, I couldn't make more emphasis, enough emphasis on the coming election to remove the government. I, let's not talk Republican and Democratic. Let's talk climate denier versus climate activist. And we should really be removing the levers of power and government from the climate deniers because they are clearly not being sane. And we should get the levers of power into the hands of climate activists, which... Um, to who will challenge the, the petroleum complex, which is a huge octopus that has control of the society and the Congress at the moment. And uh, this is really, really critical. So, mm -hmm. um, so, and I think that a Buddhist ethic of, um, see, you know, there was a great editorial by um, Michelle Alexander, 
who is a wonderful sociologist uh, who wrote a great book called The New Jim Crow about the mass incarceration going on with the people of color in our country. And she said in this op-ed, I think in the Times, six months ago maybe, I wish I believed in future life. I unfortunately don't, she said, but I wish I did, and I wish lots of people did, she said, mm -hmm. because this might get some of the people who are behaving so recklessly and cruelly about the planet and about other people to decide they better shape up because they're going to be back, mm -hmm. and they're going to have to suffer the consequences of how they've treated the world. And I was so touched by that, e even though she didn't, She's not into it, but I would say she maybe met some Buddhists or something, you know. I would give credit to Buddhists for making her think like that. Mm -hmm. Although although she should find out that it's sensible to actually believe it, but which she doesn't do, you know. Never mind. Okay, what's next? Yeah, well, you know, I, I want to just elaborate on one small thing here, because when we transition shortly here, Bob, to discussions on dream yoga, maybe a little bit on Ursul uh, sleep yoga and Bardo yoga, in relation to the first question, um, one of the things that interests me is, you know, are we in fact ready for things like tantric Buddhism, the Vajrayana in the West? Can we handle the subtleties and the kind of thermonuclear power of this spiritual technology? And even lastly, do we deserve it? Um, because on one level, <laughs> when you look at the scandals, it would suggest, no, we're not ready. I, I listened to your very compelling podcast about sexual abuse, which I found riveting. And yes. on one level, it really does suggest to me that maybe we don't deserve this spiritual technology. Maybe we're not ready for it, because if we just open our eyes and see what the alleged masters, a couple of bad apples in, in the bushel, have done, yes. this cause for concern. So what do you think about that? Well, I think that um, we do deserve everything, because we're human beings. So we deserve every possible teaching. However we deserve to understand it and to be taught about it in a way that is practical for us. And also, I think that one of the great contributions of Tibet is it picked up from where India left off. You know, in India, the Tantra existed from the time of the Buddha, for sure. There's no doubt if anybody looks objectively. And you don't just date by some fragment of a text that somebody found somewhere in the garbage, but you look at the meaning of things. And um, and yet for a thousand years after Buddha's time, it was made preserved very, very esoterically, not because people didn't deserve the teaching right away, but because most people couldn't use it properly. The yep. society was not ready for it. And so the society had to be developed up to a certain point, which it took about a thousand years to do. I mean, initially, the universal vehicle Buddhist teaching, that is the one about the bodhisattvas and, and everyone should become free of suffering and so on, not mm -hmm. just each, not the individual alone, what I call the universal vehicle, built on top of the foundation of the individual vehicle. Well, the individual vehicle was the mainstream thing for about 500 years, and then the universal vehicle joined it and added to it. And could it was kept esoteric, in other words, for that first 500 years, because people would have confused non-duality with a kind of simplistic caste system, corrupted monism. And so, and so it took time for the individualism to emerge in Indian society, which was helped by the individual vehicle. Then again, another 500 years, and then the 
than the Vajrayana, the more immediate, what I call apocalyptic vehicle, the fact of being able to achieve a very high evolutionary goal in a single life through a very high tech kind of, like you could call it genetic engineering method. But then that did become very well known in the last 500 years of Indian Buddhism and the flowering before the beginning of the Islamic domination of India. Uh, for those 500 years, it was amazing, golden culture, fabulous, attracted people from all over Asia, which who reproduced it in their own societies. Name And the one that we were thinking about, of course, is Tibetan one. And the Tibetans got the mother load of that culture because they were nearest to India, and they, and um, and so the the Siddhas, the great adepts, the ones who knew both individual vehicle, they knew universal vehicle, and they knew the apocalyptic or Vajra vehicle, and they moved right in. And Tibetans started from where India left off, and they didn't have to hold it in super esoteric level for too long, and um, it was kind of safe society. And they massively, but notice, they massively monasticized, they massively bodhisattvaized or universalized, and then they massively used the esoteric teachings without too much scandal. Now, there were scandals, even then. You know, if you're going to go by the fact of some scandals to think that a whole society shouldn't learn these more super high-tech things, then every Asian society should, doesn't deserve it either because they had a lot of scandals too. It's not an East-West thing. Right. It's just a human thing, you know, and um, the, it's the difference between the militaristic authoritarian, it's not a mystery even, militaristic authoritarian social system that doesn't allow much individualism to the people, doesn't allow a lot of education to the people, doesn't want everybody trying to save the world, they just want people to obey orders <laughs> and, and save their regime, and so they don't like any of this kind of higher education that the Buddha offered to people, not a religion really, but a higher education. It used the form of religion eventually in India um, when when that was convenient, but actually it, it was an anti-religion in Buddha's original movement. Right. He dropped out from the Vedic uh, Hinduism that existed, and he his people were didn't do... They didn't perform weddings, they didn't do birth ceremonies, they didn't do funerals, they didn't tell fortunes, they didn't do psychiatry with people. In a way, they did anything but what the religious people did, not to draw down the persecution of the Brahmins upon themselves. And they uh, instead, they represented a method, a system, and an institution for people to educate the higher faculties that the human being had. And it was a massive success spread everywhere as that, as that system of education. In different countries where the militarism was highly entrenched, like samurai-type countries, it was very much resisted. And now we see in America that the Buddhist education is kind of iffy for people who are really into sort of the Rambo level of our culture. They, it's actually officially a thing, I think, in Great Britain as well. If you're a Buddhist or you've had anything to do with Buddhism, you're not allowed to serve in the nuclear uh, military because they think you might not press the button when given the order because of your, you know, gingerness, you being ginger about taking life and things like that. And that's an official policy, actually. So they know that the Buddhist nonviolent ahimsa view is a little tricky in regard to a militaristic aspect of society. That's the thing. So that's the, that's the only mystery. And so now where we are 
is in this amazing moment in America where we're the most militarized country in history, I would say, and huge budget, all the discretionary money, mainly the bulk of it, goes to the military. We have well, quite a few wars. We have you know bases all over the world, and um, and yet we can't win a war <laughs> because it's past the time in history where anybody can win a war, and um, and therefore in a in a way our resistance to the Buddhist peace education, you know, and the different use of human life, a basic shift being. Use of human life to conquer yourself and your own base instincts and your own bad habits and so forth, as opposed to use of human life to conquer others mm -hmm. by becoming a billionaire or a politician or a king or a whatever, you know, yeah. slave holder, you know, whatever. And so, and so that shift will have to happen much more rapidly here than it did in Tibet if we're going to survive. Now, not only here, but in Russia and China. China's an interesting case because they are acting very militaristic right now, thinking of themselves as having been depredated on by the West, uh, as well as by the Mongols and the Manchus, by the way, <laughs> but never mind that. And uh, so they think they have to be really viciously militaristic. And yet they have Buddhism sort of ingrained in different portions of their culture. So they're kind of, it's kind of a confusion you know, for them. But I think they'll, they'll, if, if we join, they'll join. And we'll start this more massive education and we'll diminish the violence. Because we have to. Like, we're shooting. I saw, what was the, in 2018 or 2017, 47,000 people killed themselves by suicide, 90% with guns. Much more than the mass shootings, actually. That's you know, we, we spend all this money and we watch all these violent movies. And uh, it's not good for us. You know? Yeah, so what do you... Uh, this is incredibly provocative, um, and Bob, but I'm, I'm curious when we backpedal into, you know, what would make the West more fertile or ripe for these incredibly sophisticated technologies of the Vajrayana, of the apocalyptic um, vehicle. I love that translation, by the way, is it seems to me that, that we miss out on one of the, this, these foundational tenets. We tend to gloss over it in the West where the preliminaries are considered more important than the main practice. And, and I mention this because when we, we slowly transition into things like dream yoga, um, everybody rushes to the goodies, everybody rushes to try to get lucidity, but they're not doing the proper work. So wouldn't you say, Bob, that, that we in the West are um, too quick to jump over Sheila, Samadhi, and pra, um, Prajna? I mean, the three, the kind of trifecta of, of, oh, of, of course. So can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of doing uh, that? Yes, West of course. Quick. Well, my, my new book, if it ever gets printed, which um, was finally to touch up, it's in the editor's hands, though, so hopefully it will. Um, it, it, it's called, uh, it really deals with the Eightfold Path, the Fourth Noble Truth, mm -hmm. but mobile, the way Tibetan Buddhism does, actually, doesn't leave and depart from the Four Noble Truths. But it just unpacks them with more science, with yeah. more methodology, uh, adding to the, the original versions that were taught to the individual vehicle. And, um, for example, take the term Abhidharma. Prajna, you know, means wisdom. We think of that, and we, we think of it wrongly, I think, I'm afraid, 
as just being some sort of ripe old age, some old codger gets wise, seen a hundred winters, and knows when the groundhog is coming out, stroking his beard and acting like whatever, <laughs> and not smoking a cigar anymore or to live longer. But but that's not wisdom. Wisdom is represented in Buddhism as a 16-year-old holding a flaming sword in a book. And the sword is the sword of analysis, the scalpel of cutting away confusion and not problems and nuts. And the book is the book of transcendent wisdom, which know, which means the knowledge of the true nature of reality. And so the Buddhist education has this preposterous claim at its foundation that every human being is capable of understanding the world perfectly, not just Einstein. Or actually, Einstein blew it here and there. Uh, you know, every human being is capable of understanding the world. And not only that, but every human being has to understand the world in order to find joy. And every human being deserves joy. The suffering thing in the first noble truth is only a wake-up call about living in an uneducated, ignorant manner and thereby uh, suffering unnecessarily. And Buddha's whole point is that you don't have to do that. You can live in nirvana. Me, which is not only the wonderful Indian restaurant they used to have on Central Park South in New York, which was like <laughs> looking out over the park and having really great curries. But uh, nirvana is everything, actually, according to Buddha's great discovery. So we all can have it. We all should have it. We need the education to get it. And... Um, we need it systematically. Now, for example, meditating. Everybody has been selling Buddhism and Hinduism pretty much. And then there's some competitive ones from the Western tradition, Sufis and things. But they've been selling it as meditation. That's it. Just meditate and you'll be fine. And that is total nonsense. Everyone is meditating all the time. People, some people meditate on Fox News 13 hours a day. And naturally, they... They're feeling a little rattled <laughs> because that's what they're meditating on. So the point is not just meditating. The point is what are you meditating on? And therefore, for example, in the Eightfold Path, the first thing that you have to do is not meditate. You have to look at what you think reality is and what you think you are. You correct your view. You analyze the view that you're handed by your culture of what you are and what you're supposed to do and where am I? What am I doing here? The famous statement of Admiral Stilwell, or whatever his name was, Ross Perot's vice president, my favorite statement in American politics. <laughs> where are you? Where am I? What am I doing here? Well, you have to answer that question for yourself unless you want to live like a robot and do what other people tell you. Why should you do what they tell you? What are you? And where are you? And where are you going? And how you have to prepare to go there. You are very prepared when you go downtown, when you go to office, when you go on a summer vacation trip, you organize, you have all the papers and everything, bookings. But you, why don't you prepare for life like that? Well, you get educated, but then educating, mostly they put you in job training. There's a little liberal education for supposedly some sort of elite, but don't have time for that in high school. Don't have time for that. Just reading, writing, STEM, you know, and computer programming now. But the point is, you first you have to do that. You have to. Why do I? Why would I want to sit and type in a computer all my life? And what would I be typing? And who am I? And so on. So that's the first question. 
then when you answer that in a reasonably sensible way with the help of a lot of experts, it's not, and, it, and you don't accept, Buddha's whole thing was don't accept dogmas and doctrines that because somebody else says they're great. Don't follow authorities. Must Think be. it through yourself. And that's what you have to do. And you come up with what is sensible for you and what will motivate you. Then second thing, once you do that, you say, well, if that's what I most it makes most sense to me that I am and life is about, then I should live my life doing such and such. And you come up with a life purpose. And then third, fourth, and fifth, you get into correcting your language skills and use of language. You get into correcting your ethical behavior. And you select a mode of livelihood. These are all ethical type things to engage with others so that you have the basis in a sort of stable life because you're interacting nicely with others. They like you, you like them, and you speak right, you know, and you listen well, and then you don't do anything harmful to make money or to make a livelihood. And um, th those are the next three things to meditate, how, how to do that. And then you think about creativity, and finally you actually sit and practice mindfulness, and then samadhi, you know, the last two, seven and eight, are meditating. Because you cannot get anywhere meditating if you haven't first corrected your view of yourself in the world and corrected your behavior of your way of interacting with other people. That's just practical. Any education system will tell you that. So what is the of this book, Bob, the one that you're, that you're about to release? Can you share the title with us so our listeners can look for it when it comes out? Uh, yes, of course I will. Yes, I promise. I promise. It's it has a nice title actually. Okay. It's called it's called if they let me keep the title. It's <laughs> called Buddhas Have More Fun. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but not Buddhists, not Buddhists. Buddhas. Right. right. The Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. We always have to remember that, right? Right. Well, he sort of he sort of showed the way once he was enlightened. He showed that it would be nice, but they didn't use the word Buddhist. Actually, they used the word insider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, an uh, inner person, an uh, inward person, a person who's in a community. You know, that's what they use. Only much later did the did these Hindus uh, use the word Buddhist, Bauda. You know, in in Sanskrit, they didn't yeah, use that early on. It's very. It's like what you you know this better than me, of course. Like chipa versus nanpa, right? Insider versus outsiders. Um, that's so, right. That was yeah. it, and that meant inside. Realism, you know, I like to say that Buddhism basically is being realistic. Yeah. So if you're inside the the sort of effort to try to be realistic about the world and yourself, then yeah. you're that's that's what it means. That's what you're inside being realistic. Yeah, I just want to put a, an exclamation point on what you're saying here because also our, our mutual friend Alan Wallace speaks a great deal about this as well. Is that you know we we very quickly forget that without a proper foundation of Shila of ethics morality, it's it's the field that has to be there for these higher so-called spiritual practices to even come about. And and I would argue that it's almost a kind of um, safeguard that if in fact you don't have this fundamental infrastructure of, of discipline, ethics, morality, that yeah. the social technologies don't work. I mean, you know, let old Mahayana or Vajrayana, I remember uh, the Vijayana Trungpa once said, taking this even a step further with Bodhicitta, um, and this again, I'm, I'm tossing this in for our listeners because when we slowly start to transition into dream yoga, bhakti yoga, these are Vajrayana level practices, and without these proper foundations, 
these practices don't land on fertile ground. And so the Vijayanara once said a very famous line that having the Vajrayana without Bodhicitta is like having a really fancy house with every conceivable electrical gadget, but no hookup. So nothing. <laughs> and I think this, I, I, keep, I want to harp on this just a little bit, Bob, because very often, you know, I, I've been a meditation instructor for um, 20, 30 years. I've been practicing for over 40. And so many people are just stuck. They're spinning their wheels, often told to meditate harder, often told to just keep, you know, working it's something that doesn't really seem to be um, uh, operable or having any traction. And, and I honestly think it's because they haven't done these foundational practices on, and really created the proper fertile field whereupon these more sophisticated technologies can actually take root. Well, partially, yes. But I think that we, we, should, it's, we should really keep it simple. You mentioned the scandals, and I don't mean to avoid them. Oh, okay. You know, the, the thing is that Buddha himself, he made the role of the teacher uh, not to big authoritarian thing. That is to say, in Indian society of his time was very patriarchal society. And even the word for teacher, guru, means literally meaning in Sanskrit and Indic languages, it means heavy. Right. So the idea of a father figure heavily sitting on your head and ordering you about what to do, which relates to the idea of a father a king, and relates to the idea of a father god bossing you around. And so it's all very domineering, authoritarian thing. And Buddha, in Christian monasticism, for example, primary virtue of a Christian monk or nun is obedience. Obedience to the law, obedience to the rule, obedience to the abbot, obedience to the pope, obedience to the patriarch, obedience to God. And, um, and it's not a big virtue for a Buddhist a mendicant. The Buddhist wants to develop themselves as an individual, and their teachers are called Kalyanamitra, virtuous friends, encouraging friends. And they're not, and because Buddha himself, he said, Look, I'm Buddha. I know everything. I'm perfectly happy. I'm perfectly free. I'm smiling up a storm. I really feel good. And I knew that I would. <laughs> but I didn't know I'd feel this good, he said. And then he says, Unfortunately, by my telling you that, it doesn't help you that much. And I can't explain to you just in the form of a doctrine or a dogma or truth that you can believe in that you how you get there. You have to come to an understanding yourself. So, but I can I can help you as a teacher helped you learn chemistry. I've studied more chemistry. I can mix this and that without it blowing up, and I can help you with that. But you have to do the work yourself. So then, uh, that's the nature of the Buddhist thing. And then the the tantra. And the esoteric thing, however, is like psychiatry. There is a transference thing where a person goes back to their most deepest subconscious infantile dependencies. And a teacher, again called a guru in India, although Tibetans have a better word for it, lama, mm -hmm. which they say translates guru, but actually has different connotations. It means someone who you can't get past. It doesn't mean someone who dominates you. So it's not like someone higher than you. It's someone who kind of, you just, you're like tar baby. Once you get involved with them, you can't get unstuck from them. Like the tar baby, you know, right? That's, yeah. what, the, that's what lama means. It means there's no way to get beyond it. Rather than it's higher, which is what guru means. You know? So they added, of course, with their own brilliance, because they're so great, the Tibetans. They really were, are great people and a great culture. And because of that, 
they they jump to a better interpretation. And what has the reason these scandals have happened is a two-way street. One, Western people, for all their vaunted sense of we're the great individuals, are highly authoritarian in structure and very very prone to being dependent on parents and authorities and politicians and whoever you will. They're very, very conformist, like even you could say. So then they when they, they want to put they want, oh where's my guru? Oh I have a guru. They want to depend on someone again who doesn't and then then a, a, a person like a Lama who actually has a lot of good ideas from his own culture and knows that they have to study and do things, they feel the pressure of this dependency and a little bit the perks of the dependency and it corrupts them. And then they realize they can kind of dominate people by acting like, yeah, just depend on me and I'll save you because I'm so enlightened. And then they become professionally enlightened, which in Zen has a wonderful expression. It means being trapped in the demon ghost cave. Yeah. You know, thinking you're enlightened and I have a favorite somewhat thing. You can always censor it out of the talk. But I say it means you put yourself under the burden of where you have to fart Chanel number five. And that's really hard to do. And so you're trapped. And so they, they, that guru or that lama gets trapped. And then they get more and more self-indulged and corrupted. And then they feel they can't live without the people who feel they can't live without them. So then they use them for all kinds of purposes which are not benefiting the student. And therefore then the, venture, and the student takes it because they think that this is what's supposed to be guru devotion. And then they eventually blow up, however, and then they turn out to hate the person. And not only that, they hate all the good things they learned as well, that's usually true. from that person in the beginning stages. And that's really where the, the that's the real bad karma of the ba of the of the corrupt guru, is because they got into people's affections by teaching useful things which they learned, but then by abusing the people, they got them to think that the useful things even were no longer useful. And that's really bad. The point is, traditionally, in under guru devotion, the major devotion is not service and respect, as people wrongly think, and going around groveling and slurping around the guru. The major thing is enacting the teaching, learning what you're taught, putting it into practice, understanding it, doing the practice. That's how you're devoted to the guru. Guru doesn't want to be slobbered on, a real good one. They want you to thrive, and they want you to understand, and then you can be helpful to other people. They, 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 they are not into conquering and dominating you, is the point, the really good one. Yeah, and this is where, Bob, you know, I'm sure you know John Wellwood talked really quite eloquently about this very, very long time ago when he made this critical distinction between waking up and growing up, or what, you know, our folks... <laughs> waking up and throwing up? Oh, well, that's actually not bad either. Very waking good, up. I like that. Waking up versus growing up, but I like the interjection. <laughs> but, but the animal the sometimes, animal sometimes it doesn't hurt to throw up, and <laughs> then afterwards you wake up by throwing yeah. up. Very, very good. <laughs> you know, the difference between vertical um, and horizontal enlightenment, that's what our interval friends talk to about yeah. it. For people in the West, we, we, there's so much conflation going on. We, we just throw yeah. everything. One kit and caboodle, and we realize that the 
the, the human condition is a very messy, untidy affair. In I the know. Way processes it, it's not. I a know, way. but in, in a way, it's not just the West, actually. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just as bad, if not worse, actually, in some ways. But you know what is really great about the West is that everybody's a little crazy. <laughs> because we're driven slightly crazy by the whole infrastructure we've created in our confusion. And, uh, and actually, of course, in a way, the infrastructure itself, the, the, by some sort of genius inventions like Facebook and things like that, although they're driving people crazy and ruining politics at the moment, they could link everybody up to good teachings and good information and higher compassion and better wisdom. Definitely. And, and the television is the same. It's mostly used for brainwashing people, but because it's controlled by, by narrow-minded interests. But it could be really enlightening people, and it, because enlightening means educating. Mm -hmm. and, uh, we're, we, and we're all a little crazy, and we know we need educating. We are challenging all kind of old-fashioned things, except for fundamentalists among us who trying to run back into an earlier century. Uh, but, uh, but that's not, that's, a, that's a, luckily only like a 25% or 20%. But mostly we're open to trying to figure out what to do. And that, that's what India was like in Buddha's time. And all the different renaissances in, in, in Buddhist history and Tibetan history also had to do with times like that, where people were basically sort of forced by social and technological and climatic change to try to refigure how they're going to live and how they're going to behave. And that's what we're doing. And for that, Buddhism has great services to offer, which are, do not include converting people to Buddhism. Yeah. We, that's not really a service. People can become Buddhists if they like in, in a sort of religious way, but they should do so knowing that being a Buddhist is not the main part of the education. It's secondary. The main part is being more true to yourself, more true to others, more realistic how you live life. And by the way, I need to say something nice about Alan Wallace, our friend, mm -hmm. which is that I saw the word realistic used in relation to the Eightfold Path in a book he wrote. And then it clicked in my head, and I never translate right view or wrong view anymore. It's realistic and unrealistic. Or Samyak and, and Mitya. And, and, but then, to my disappointment, Alan went back to right and wrong just to be conventional with some Theravadans or something. He decided to do that. So, but I learned it from him. I always want to give credit. I like to give credit where it's due. Because really, Buddha's you know, prescriptions and, and, and recommendations to us are not absolutist rules, like religious rules. And therefore, you're right or wrong because you followed the rule or didn't follow it. Really, they are prescriptions of being realistic. And this explains a wonderful thing in Buddhist ethics, that the word that everybody translates as virtue originally meant skill. And skill means kushala. That's that word kushala in Sanskrit. And skill, why would you say to, to save someone's life is skillful? Well, you could be clumsy about how you do it. But the fact of doing it is skillful because by saving their life, you're connecting to their life. You're identifying with them. You're expanding your sense of being a connected, interconnected person. So you're becoming a better person, and that's evolutionarily skillful. If you kill someone else, you're saying that life has nothing to do with me. 
you're isolating yourself more from life, from the vastness of life, and you're narrowing your sense of being, and you're lowering your evolutionary potential. So it's just a, it's amazing thing that the Buddha saw this evolutionary human possibility 2,500 years before dear Charles Darwin. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So therefore, when you, when you follow an ethical thing, you're being realistic in the sense of you're improving the world by being aware of what reality is. Yeah, it's more than So I wish Alan would go back to it. Okay, well, I'll ping him a note and, and uh, send up a request. So, so one, last, one last thing, Bob, before we, we switch to, to dream yoga, because I really want to talk sure. to you about experiences there. But again, I, you're such an extraordinary resource, and I want to tap one more topic with you. And that is sure. what, what is your, your view of the kind of neuromania um, that's happening, the neurophenomenology, this, you know, incredible. Oh, I yeah, I love um, it. yeah, talk to us a little bit about that. Do you see, do you, outside of the, talk to us about the light, and then do you see any shadow elements to that? Does, of, course. We, of course, but the shadow element doesn't come from the neuroscience. The shadow element is just there in the dogma of materialism for every form of post-Western Enlightenment science. The fact that in order to escape from hell, Danger, uh, the danger of hell and the church that the intellectuals of the past centuries decided they would simply not consider mind or spirit to exist. And they would get rid of it just by deciding blindly not to consider it. Uh, that's the shadow. And so the more, you know, they, you know, they go into the genes, they go, they got, they got down to quantum super subtle atomic particle physics. And now they're down to the neurons in the brain, you know, and every time they think, oh, we're going to figure out how to control reality to ameliorate our position in it by ignoring anything mental, because that's too murky area for us. We can't deal with our own minds. So we're going to get the drug that's going to make us happy, the, 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 the electrical jolt that will make us enlightened, the whatever it is, the, 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 the robot, you know, like um, a cyborg brain extender that's going to make us perfectly Buddha. We'll all be Buddhas and everything. So it's all, that's the shadow side. It's this stupid, actually fanatic materialism that these people are caught in. And I say fanatic and fundamentalist about it because it, that's what it is. That's right. They, they are supposed to go on empirical experience and privileged experience over dogma and theory. And that's why they were supposedly getting away from the church. But then they came up with a dogma, which is that when they're dead, they won't exist. And their consciousness will be nothing. But the fact is there was no evidence for that. Nobody experienced being nothing. Nobody ever has. Nobody ever will. The simplest common sense can tell you that. Because actually, newsflash, nothing is nothing, which means it's a non-referring term. It's not a place. It's not a condition. It's not there. So to believe that you're going there is like more blind faith than to think that God is sitting on a throne up there eating popcorn and watching the planet collapse. You know, it's, that would be more sensible. At least there's a crunching sound coming from the heavens, you know. God was a burning bush to Moses or something, you know, what he thought was God. He made some excessive claims about himself. I am what I am, which was Moses thought was very profound. But actually, it was a meaningless statement in a way. 
So never mind that. My, I don't want to get after God. All I'm saying is that this is the shadow side. And But what's the good side is this. The quantum people in 1926, they got to Heisenberg and Niels Bohr especially, they got down to refined analysis of matter past where they could do it. And the mind re-emerged for them because they noted that how they observed something affected it. So the process of observing, them, which is the mind, actually has a role in nature. Yeah. So they told Einstein and everybody, forget about it. We're not going to pin down Bertrand Russell with his like notion of the Principia Mathematica. We're not going to pin down reality where you can have a symbol that will manipulate the reality one-to-one -one absolute correspondence, and you'll be in control of your universe via mathematics or your mind, your ego. You know, that won't happen. They, they realize that. But not all is not lost, they said. We can work with probabilities. We can surf, surf the quantum wave. We can do lots of stuff and make beautiful things and, and improve life. Uh, oh, we can also blow up the world. Well, okay. But never mind. We'll handle that. Politicians will handle that. Military people. But the point is, we, they announced that, and Einstein would, couldn't agree. He was caught with this wish to depend on something and wish to control something by ego. So he said, God doesn't play dice. I don't play dice. And I'm going to find certainty and I'm going to unify everything. Of course, he failed for the next 30 or 40 years. <laughs> so, so my point is, this is the shadow side. And then they went with the genes and they were going to control everything by genes. Then all they did was discover we're 98% chimpanzee. Then they, then, and there's all the thing about gene expression. So then, oh, a new thing, billions of dollars. The, the, the neurons, the brain, oh, now we've got the brain. Let's figure out everything, how it works. Well, that's a mechanism. We'll figure it out. But, of course, they're finding out that they can't figure it out. And it could re reshapes itself. It's protein. You know, it's reshaped by something called thought, by the mind. Because, lo and behold, they have one, every single one of them. And we all have one. And we can actually shape and affect the brain. And that, when, when they discovered that, Richie Davidson and other kinds of colleagues, about neuroplasticity and that the mind, the habits of the mind, the way the mind works, meditating, thinking, acting certain ways, the way that works, it actually shapes the mechanism. And therefore, mind has traction in matter. And therefore, you have to, you have to re-complement materialist science with inner science, with mentalist science. You know, let's not use spiritual, or they all run shrieking in fear. Say mentalist science. And uh, uh, then that's the new science we're going to have when the Buddha's science meets material science, which is what it's doing in the form of neuroscience meeting some yogis. But, but the shadow is preventing them, of course, from one thing, which is, I say, like software. Mm -hmm. They're all hardware, 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 billions and billions, no limit to the funding. And you can't get a buck to translate a book about how the yogi develops his neuroplasticity and develops his bigger forebrain or his bigger hippocampus or whatever it is. You can't get a buck for the, the codes, the tantric abhidharma, I will call it, of, of the science of how you work with your own central nervous system, with your mind.
not with machines, not with EEGs, not with fMRIs, not with chemicals, but with your mind itself. Uh, that, but that's a matter of time. They will get to it if we survive the next bunch of hurricanes. We'll get to it. But I'm um, saying that's that it's not like neuroscience in itself is shadow. It's good. Any investigation of reality is realistic. It's good. Where they're held back is the unrealistic dogma that ultimately it's all nothing and nothing is sitting around them waiting for them to collapse into it. And yeah. so that's all they have to worry about is how to get from here to there with the pension and the gravestone or the or the booking at the crematorium. And then they're fine because they're asleep permanently. What dreams may come are not going to give them pause, right, when they have shuffled off this mortal coil, you know, as you know. So, so, so that's my view of that. Yeah, and so I'm wondering about, you know, it's interesting, one of the things that flashes for me you know, the, your circumambulating, of course, is the topic of reductionism, a kind of explanatory reductionism that we can, I see this as a major shadow side of, of the conflation, I should say the, the conflation, the dance of science, is that we can just explain everything is, as Ken Wilber put it, um, the, the machinations of frisky dirt. And, and what I want to talk to you about... That well, wanna, well, well, let me just quickly say, though, Sure. Materialistic reductionism is perfectly okay from a Buddhist scientific point of view, as long as they realize it's a heuristic choice <coughs> and take responsibility for it. But they don't. Idealist Buddhism, like Yogacara, Banyanavada Buddhism, is mentalistic reductionism. All this crap you hear about is all in the mind and just get your mind and let's all do mind and all that. That's all. Also, another kind of reductionism, and it also has a use in a certain context. Well, Ultimately, it's, you know, mind and matter don't mean anything with the other one absent. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that's what you're very passionate about, because that's exactly where I wanted to go. Because when I take the 50,000-foot view, um, so again, you, you understand when I'm talking provision. I do, I do, I do, I do. But, you know, it's very easy to kind of point the fingers at physicalism and reductionism in the West. But I think a lot of Eastern practitioners, again, generically speaking, forget the reductionist tendencies, like you just said in the Yogacara uh, Chittamatra school, that's a form of reductionism. And yeah. I would say deeper, and this is what I want to ask you about, um, Bob, is the reductionism of everything in, in, in the East to karma, where you know everything arises because of causes and conditions. Karma is based on causes and conditions. So we conflate everything to karma. And so I see that as, as just an equally insidious form of reductionism. And along these lines, I want to ask you, why is well, it... Well, why do you think that's reductionism? It just means that processes are causal, that's all. It doesn't reduce to a particular one. But we tend to... Don't, wouldn't you agree that we tend to conflate everything that arises with karma because karma is based on causality? Well, no. No, no, I can't quite agree with that in the sense that karma simply means cause and effect. But isn't, it, isn't and, karma... And uh, and therefore, it's a kind of theory of biology. It's to how life shapes itself. And um, it is Buddha's Darwinian theory, actually, karma. You know, we were all chimpanzees. When we were chimpanzees, we were envious of a man we noticed on the trail with a, with a cell phone, and we decided we wanted to be reborn a human. <laughs> and, and uh, you know... So, so it's not like reductionist because karma is mental, verbal, and physical. It's not just physical. Right. And it's causal. 
And also, finally, Buddha also said, any scientific theory is hypothetical. So it's not absolute dogma either. It's a useful uh, uh, relative description of life processes that, you know, there's always a, there's an escape clause, of course, because otherwise we could never have attained nirvana. We could not attain nirvana. Uh, you know, we couldn't go beyond the cause and effect. You know, the cessation of the causes. So, yes, we, karma is breakable, but uh, obviously, but it's really useful theory, I think. And unless someone thinks of it as like a substitute for an omnipotent creator and calls it, uh, karma is doing it all like a fate, right. then, uh, then I, that's what you mean, I think. And I, I agree with that. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a neutral, causal, explanatory theory right. that is most useful, I think. Exactly, and I couldn't agree more. Now, this is what I want to ask you about, Bob, is, is <laughs> place of karma, this may be a little bit technical, but since I have you on the line, it's a rare opportunity for me. The place of karma in, in what I understand is, is the five niyamas, you know, the five orders or factors of reality. Um, well, how does that land the with... Five, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the five what? The niyamas that they come from the from uh, allegedly from Buddhaghosa, Zen people talk about it. The five kind of orders or factors of reality, of which karma niyama is just one of those five. Oh, I see. I see. Well, yeah, they can whatever. That's the way he's using karma. That, that's nice. More power to him. I don't know what the other niyamas are. Niyama usually means like something ethical. Right. But, but karma is nothing if not ethical. Right, right. So, so uh, I'm not sure quite what you're talking about. But, yeah, but. it's a sidebar. We, when I see you in person, we can talk more about that. But what, what I want to transition to now, if you don't mind, I want to talk a little bit uh, more specifically and also personally about the, the places of both dream yoga. Oh, um, yeah. Are, are you okay going there for a little while? Because oh, I, I, sure, I think sure. that's a compelling dream yoga, is, dream yoga is really wonderful. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about it, because it obviously has a deep connection to Bardo Yoga, lucid uh, dreaming, you know, helps with lucid dying. So two questions, Bob. One is, what has the place of dream yoga been in your life um, as a practice and also as a form of study? And um, how, do you, how do you work with it now? Is it something that's actually part of your kind of regimen of practice? Yes, it definitely is. And, uh, but I'm just frustrated that I can't, I can't do things in my dream that I want to do in them. Rather, or I can in the dream, but then I want them to happen in the world. And uh, especially in regard to the climate crisis. And uh, so, uh, but in a way, it's good to rehearse positive outcomes and challenging negative outcomes in dreams. I think to sort of warm up and plan for how to do it in life. I think that's good. And of course, there are many different types of dreams. And, um, but one thing I should say about it, you know, uh, uh, psychotherapy is a dream yoga, I think. That's a modern Western dream materialist, uh, dom you know, uh, constrained a little bit dream yoga because the, the, the client sits and free associates. So they kind of do waking dreaming with the encouragement of the therapist. And then they begin to find out more things from the dreams and they relate them to the therapist. So in a way, it makes them become more conscious of their dreams. And they're using their dreams to try to reshape their own personal 
lifestyle and their narrative and even their neuroplasticity of their brain and, uh, and uh, be more healthy and relate better to the world. So that's already there as a dream yoga, I think. And one of the important aspects of it, of course, is the relationship with the psychiatrist, where the person is, lets oneself go into a sort of subtle plane where one lacks control and then yet is able to confront things that would normally be hidden to oneself. You know, that's really good. So similarly, I think that the Buddhist dream yoga as one of the six yogas of Naropa and so on, in the form that we know it most usefully, I guess, or Niguma also, is the place of the psychiatrist is taken by the Lama. So one has some kind of, it's most safely done, I think, in the context of a personal relationship with a guide. And uh, it's like also, you know, psychedelics or entheogens. You know, the curandero role in those societies that use them creatively is very important. That someone has to help you when you go into a phase where you're sort of helpless. And, uh, and I think that's something we should recognize, you know, um, about dream yoga, my, my, I, I believe. And therefore, if you teaching dream yoga, you can do it very well, but you have to be responsible that you're then serving as a guide with the student, you know. And um, uh, even when you don't, if you never see them again, in some way, your presence has helped encourage them to look at these aspects of themselves. And I think it's really, really deep. In fact, I would say, <laughs> that it's the next step for mindfulness practice. Yeah, you know, exactly. the, the great craze of mindfulness exactly. is to try to watch your own mind and try to see how the mechanisms of your thought processes work to gain a little more independence and freedom in choosing which ones to go with. And, uh, and uh, then you're looking more deeply into those processes when you do dream yoga. And uh, it's essential, even without tantra, I consider it essential and uh, there's some nice books by people who study in the Buddhist uh, narratives of the monks and the Buddha himself, even in, in the Pali literature, the different dreams that the Buddha has and what they mean to him and how they, how they change his behavior and his life. And uh, it's, it's, I think they're very, very true because uh, if you, the, the key Buddhist thing in psychology is the purpose of life is to overcome your unconscious to become conscious as much as possible of your unconscious drives, to be therefore free of being driven by them. Yeah. And, and of course, this is critical in human life because that once you die, the unconscious will push you in further, uh, in, in further states of existence and, and without you having control. So the exp exploring your unconscious through dreaming and bringing conscious to the unconscious, but also letting the unconscious pop out where the conscious isn't expecting it, all this sort of thing, is really, really valuable. And since that's one of your things, more yeah. power to you. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't. I mean, that's totally what it is. Because, and also, Bob, as you know, this is where it ties into Bardo Yoga, mm -hmm. where, where one of the um, jingles around Bardo Yoga, they, they talk about it, is the dream at the end of time. It's a little bit like what Kabir said of death was yes. how was found then. So we work with a nocturnal mind every single night as a way to gain an intimation, kind of a pop quiz of what we can do when we reach the dream at the end of time. And so, um, how, very good. How does, in your own experience, Bob, how, 
how do you relate dream yoga to bardo yoga um is, is this part of your own personal trajectory sure sure, sure. well i'm trying to get more conscious of the dreams and and to you know i do try to keep a little bit of a journal i will do so more now that i'm emeritus i'll be able to have more time and uh it's a prepare, preparation for the bardo of course and it's a preparation even for the, every night is a bardo, actually, in a way, and every dream is a bardo. And you wake up changed by your dream one way or the other. And um, you want it to be positive, then you want to be more conscious and it's called steering yourself, surfing in the dream. I, I, I hesitate to use control because controlling indicates maybe that you, you know, you, you're not allowing yourself to discover new things uh, because you're controlling. But in a way, you can just control at some levels and still be open to have some areas where you're willing to discover. And I think I try to do that, and I hope that prepares me for the bardo. Although I'm still hoping I'm only nearly 80, and uh, I was ordered by um, an authority that I have to live to 100 and, 107, possibly, but at least 97. 180. And... Um, so maybe I won't have a bar now. Maybe I'll attain enlightenment before I'm 97. I'm still hoping and working at it. But yeah. I, I, not very realistic, I must admit. But, you know, wishful thinking. <laughs> so, so I plan to do that. And, uh, and uh, all the other bardos, you know, going to a movie is a bardo. You know, in the sense that, therefore, you shouldn't go to violent horror movies and things where you're going to have, like, really bad repercussions in your neuroplastic brain and uh, and um, go choose good theater and good movies that will elevate you in some way and bring out your compassion or whatever or your good humor and um, you know every day is a bardo even where you you know you daydream a lot in a day you know your mind runs over this and that and it, the whole thing is trying to be more consciously aware of what you are doing and what sort of a process you are. And uh, using the night for that as well as the day, I think is really excellent. And I yes. try to do it. I, but I'm not, I don't consider that I'm doing it very well, but I'm trying. Yeah. And speak to us, Bob, if you don't mind for a second, about um, the relationship to uh, dream yoga, um, to what I understand you and Dr. Nida talk about is menla sleep yoga. Can you talk to us a little bit about oh, yeah. well, that? Uh, that's, a, that's a little bit my invention. Uh, uh, but Dr. Nida adds a lot of good things that I couldn't do it. Mine is really very simple. Because if I hope to have one fruit of this life on this planet in this, in this country, uh, I do hope that I will have helped people free themselves from the dungeon uh, trap of nihilism, thinking that they're just a robot and, and then they die and they're nothing. So uh, since that's very much a focus of my mind in talking to audiences and people, try to help them reorient themselves in a bigger framework, then the fact that when we go to sleep, we release our consciousness at some point to fall asleep. But we, we, if we don't, we'll take a pill because we need to and we want to. Uh, I think subliminally it ratifies 
and the person who has been brainwashed in science classes and by reading uh, books by Daniel Dennett and Steven Pinker and others, that it's sort of a known fact or it's reality that you're going to be nothing when you die. They think, well, I experience that when I go to sleep. I'm nothing. And I have a, so at night, I'm not, I, become, I, for, I have a foretaste of the unconscious nothing that will be my state after death when my heart no longer beats and my EEG brain is a flatline. Mm -hmm. So what I said was, no. I looked at the thing from the Book of the Dead and from the Unexcelled Yoga Tantras, where you have the three layers of the subtle mind of luminance, radiance, and imminence, as I call them, which is a moonlit space, a sunlit space, and a dark, dark space. And then you conk out as far as subject-object vestigial connection goes when it's darkness because you've become unconscious. But you don't stay there. Then you go in what's called clear light, which is this kind of weird, indescribable light that casts no shadow. For everything is light. And in a way, therefore, it's not bright as opposed to dark. The, the metaphor, the simile is gray, pre-dawn, twilight. And this, but yet, you know, it might, you can think of it as super bright because there's no shadow, or you could even be, think of it as like a, a brilliant darkness if you want to get beyond duality, but never mind. But whatever it is, it's an infinite energy. It's a Vajra energy. It's a, like a, like lightning. It's like a diamond can't be broken. It is like the most powerful thing there is. But it's sneaky because being the most powerful thing, it doesn't do anything because it's infinite. Everything's already done in the universe, if you know. It's already finished because it never even began, maybe. You can say, oh, you can say any kind of thing about it practically. And the point is, however, anything that is needing anything from it can draw whatever they need. So then with this, I then supply people who come to Menla. This is Menla sleep yoga. But Menla does mean medicine Buddha, of course, which is Dr. Nida. <laughs> anyway, you, if you were lying in a bed of nothing all night, you would get no new energy, and there's no reason for you to feel better in the morning and energized. You must be lying in a bath of energy. And if it's infinite energy, you're getting everything you need because your mind, your personality-driven mind is out of the way. It's unconscious. And you, every cell in your body and every atom, every subatomic energy is open to its field without boundary. So then think of yourself. Don't expect to see it. You still conk out. Things go dark. But once you're in the dark, you don't know what's happening. So then what actually is happening is this twilight energy fills every cell in your body and you're going to feel great in the morning. And that's what it is. And of course, in a way, there is a famous Siddha, I forget his name, maybe Kadgapa, who only liked to sleep. I think that's maybe where I got it from. Lovapa. What's his name? Lovapa. Lovapa. Oh, great. Oh, good. Good for you. Good. 
Good. Yeah, he liked to sleep, right? And Nagarjuna, I believe, they don't say in some of the stories who it was, no. but I believe that Nagarjuna in his Mahasiddha form found him sleeping in a charnel ground cemetery, and he was crying. But he looked very handsome and healthy and happy, but he was crying, and he was lying in a charnel ground. And Nagarjuna said, well, why are you doing that? And he said how he only likes to sleep. And Nagarjuna said, and, and therefore, my wife and parents threw me out of the house, told me since I want to be virtually dead, I might as well go to the charnel ground. And then I'm crying because I'm out of my house and my loved ones have kicked me out. So then uh, Narajuna says, well, I will give you a teaching. And you combine your sleep with the clear light of the Dharmakaya, of Buddhahood, which is connected with the clear light of sleep and the clear light of death. And if you do that, then you can turn sleep into a path. So, oh, I love that, he said. So then he did. And then he slept for 12 years and became a Buddha. So I really love that one. It's fantastic. But unfortunately, unfortunately nobody wants me to sleep for oh, 10 years. <laughs> so, Bob, how did this, what a beautiful image here. I just love your phraseology. It's like resting in a bath of energy and the twilight energy fills every cell of your body. What a beautiful, evocative image. Can you say a little bit more, Bob, about what actually constitutes the Menlo Sleep Yoga outside of this actual view? What 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 are the actual yeah. of this practice? Just fall asleep, but you use the inference. You know, people are snotty about inference. They're all into direct experience. Oh, direct, which I I call intuition actually, uh -huh. and uh, you know, which is which is of course very important. Our deepest experiences, in a way, are direct in normal life where we don't have any conceptual intermediation. And we call that direct, and that's so very good. And Buddhist epistemology is brilliantly analyzed from Dignaga's time, even from Buddha's time. So there's nothing, no problem with that. But and there is a final idea about non duality, and uh, that is, I think, very important that we neglect in doing that. And that is. There is a duality between inference and experience, direct experience. Yeah, people don't, I don't like, people use the word perception for that, but I think that's wrong because of the Latin prefix per. This is just experience. And, and uh, that duality should also be resolved in enlightenment where there must be a direct experience of an inference. And what do I mean by that? And this is very important about the absolute, really, actually. Because emptiness, we are just as empty as any object is empty. So our subjectivity is just as empty. So the whole famous direct experience thing, water poured in water, subjectivity floating into objectivity, and then so-called direct experience of emptiness. But actually, when we say direct experience, we always think about sense organ with its object. So what does it mean, direct experience, when the subject and object are not different? Mm -hmm. It's not, you don't have an, it's not an experience of space. No way, you can have an experience of space where you're floating in it, and it's an object. But when you deeply experience the ultimate reality, since you already are the ultimate reality, you actually only know that by inference. So then inference has become direct, actually. And huh. the direct experience, infantuality, has collapsed. 
as every every dualism should collapse in such an enlightened state. But nobody, but everyone ignores that, and then this leads to the very bad problem that certain people have had, where they had an experience of disappearing meditatively, like it was almost like they went unconscious while meditating, and yet they remained erect sitting or something like that. So they were consciously unconscious, let's just say. Uh -huh. And then, because they had that, then they go around saying, I realized emptiness. Ah, now I can do whatever I want. Oh, I'm enlightened. That's the demon ghost case. Mara, yeah, Mara, yeah. Because they're, they're, they're throwing out inference, which would know, let them know that the, the ultimate level of the ultimate, the ultimate ultimate, is not knowable as a relational event. Mm -hmm. Okay? Which can only be known actually by inference. Since there is no such direct experience, okay. Yeah, and so so Bob, you, you said something really compelling. I mean, there's so many little provocative jewels you're tossing out here, but to to bring um, dream yoga, sleep yoga, a little bit into connection to bardo yoga, when you're talking about um, the clear light mind that casts no shadow, um, is this? I, I'm I'm wondering if you're using this in connection to matik patigle, you know, the the indestructible bindu. Um, yeah. Would you think those are virtually synonymous? Well, that's a concept. That's the concept of like the Buddha nature, indestructible drop. Uh, there's a, there's a hundred, tons of synonyms in the Book of the Dead translation. I translated that other kind of thing about it. And uh, lots of synonyms. And that is that was esoteric because people would use that to confirm the naive, reified sense of personality soul. Exactly. As, a, as a unchanging, uh, complete, fixated thing in the core of one's being. And, uh, and that would be wrong. Whereas the indestructible drop is indestructible in its continuity. But it's not just flatly one unchanging thing. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's, it's, it's nairatmya paramatma. It's the yeah. supreme self of selflessness. In that sense, it is constantly changing. It's super subtle level. That's how it goes into rebirth and so on. And so when people, I, I call it I like to call it a soul gene. Soul actually. Gene. Yeah, and genes cool. change. We know that genes change. They can have defects. They can get worse or better. They record change rather than resist change, which is what the naive soul theories think, you know. That it's something that doesn't change. And since there is no such thing that doesn't change inside us, they then get all stressed out trying to act like they're not changing when they immediately they are changing. So when people so when people ask you the, the, the proverbial question in Bardo what is it that, that transmigrates, reincarnates, takes rebirth, um, what is your back of the envelope response yeah, yeah. to that? Sure, it's a super subtle soul continuum or soul gene is what I like to call it. But they, the Theravadans have Chitta Santana. And they, that's what they say, Chitta Santana, that's the continuum of mind. And that's the same thing. Uh, but of course, they're always thinking they don't really get much so much into the super subtle level, yeah. or even the subtle level, because they are uh, dealing with, uh, but, the, but, the, but the, in, in, in doctrine, let's say, or in teaching, actually, people who attain our headship do uh, automatically get into that, of course, they definitely do. And Buddha hints at it. 
you know, th this is the Prasangika view about the individual vehicle, that Buddha teaches everything in the, it does not, Buddha teaches Tantra in Theravada, as far as I'm concerned. But it's very hidden and hinted, because he doesn't want to confuse people who have a too naive a view, you know. Yeah, they have to work, work through other things, you know. I thought this would make for you a know, great... And, and, and by the way, and, and even if you teach dream yoga, therefore, or bardo yoga, or these things, you have to teach it, whether someone is a Buddhist or not. They don't have to be a Buddhist to study it, right. but they have to be someone who, A, accepts the basic tenet, you could say, of causation. That things are everything is process. It can't be clinging to some to some life raft of a fixated yeah. being. Although they will do that maybe involuntarily at the involuntary autonomic level, can't immediately overcome it by just changing a view. But by the view that yes, everything that anybody has ever noticed is a relational thing. That's sort of a realistic view. And then second. They really need to adopt some kind of messianic attitude about others. Altruism, you know. They have to decide that similarly, once everything is changing, and therefore everything is interconnected in causal processes, they are interconnected with other people, whether they're in an isolated cave on top of Mount Everest or not. They're mentally interconnected with, with everybody else. And, and therefore, they should think of how to optimize that interconnection and they should be trying to motivate themselves to whatever degree. They don't have to call themselves a bodhisattva or call themselves a messiah or a Jesus or a whatever it is, a deity or something. They don't have to do that. But they have to be feel, A, they're aware of the infinite permeability and transformability of everything, and they're open to that, let's say, even though they maybe have a gut worry about it when they're on a roller coaster or when they accelerate in a Tesla S, they might feel nauseous because of holding something the same in their gut. But nevertheless, they're open to being flow, going with the flow. And two, that that flow includes others, and they're then they're motivated to be positive to others. And then three, if that's so, they become determined to try to find out everything they can find out about everything. And with those three orientations, I think it's safe and and positive to teach stream yoga and bharat yoga, even without all the other, you know, identity card stuff. Yeah, that's lovely. That's really, really well said. And so, in relation to the bardos, as we start to um, close our time down together, what would you say, Bob, is hard advice? Summary hard advice for preparation for death because we're we're pinging on a lot of really compelling ideas. But death is wonderful. You know, the best. You know, like uh, Eckhart Tolle, yeah. Power of Now. It's really really good, but and, and and he's really really popular, and therefore he doesn't double down. He mentions, I'm sure, but I, I didn't read all of his books. I must admit, but I know I met him and I read this and that, and I like it. Yeah. But he he doesn't double down on the quickest way to get into the moment and to try to make the most of the moment is to reflect about death. Because yeah. when you realize to yourself that you're actually basically living in denial that you're going to die, 
because you're planning for next year, you're saving up for after you retire, you're doing this and doing that, and you're just assuming it's so you're just going to keep being here like this in whatever way, and therefore you're sort of postponing quality time, you know, and uh, and you're going doing all kind of duties and whatever, you know, and if you really reflect about death. And also the immediacy of it, it could happen any time. They could, you know, Putin showed in the time of the last election some weird missile that goes at sea level and no one can possibly defend that delivers a nuclear warhead. Yeah. Well, he could be sending it to Wall Street and it might miss and hit me in Woodstock <laughs> one minute from now. Right. Uh, or anything, I could choke on a bone, whatever could happen, you know. Wow. And uh, by the way, I was just read something in Time magazine that is an absolute scream. Those guys in the parliament talking about Brexit. Right. That building is about to fall down right on their heads. <laughs> it is the most vulnerable, like Notre Dame burned, you know, like it's right. the most vulnerable, accident prone. They, they, it's all basket all around them because rocks are falling off the siding. The, the electricity is in the middle of the plumbing. It's unbelievable. <laughs> so before they get to Brexit, they might actually get be leaving, leaving yeah. their society by the mode of collapsing well, their building. Anyway, never mind. Never mind. Never mind. My yeah. point is, my point Our, is that <laughs> they say, you know, that John uh, Kappas beautifully says, if you reflect on the immediacy of death with its three roots. You're definitely going to die in this body-mind complex. That doesn't mean you may you're going to cease to exist, but your this body-mind complex is going to get lost. Two, it could happen any time. You don't know when it's going to happen. You know it is going to happen. You don't know when it is going to happen. And then three, when it does happen, whatever is in the depth of your mind in your soul, in your super subtle mind, in your uncon normally unconscious, in your deepest heart, your love for beings, your fear of life, or whatever it is, that's the only thing that's going to be important. So those, those are called the three roots. And when you really get to those three roots, you realize that there is no time. This is the time. You have to make this time full of life. And, and this is your quality time, this minute. So that's really the power of now, you know. That's dear old Eckhart's stick. Yeah. But yeah. death is the death is the doorway. Death is not morbid to think about it. Death, although somebody who's too, too depressed, of course, maybe not a good idea. But you know, for some other reasons, they're really depressed and they might not dwell on it. But you could even, when you're depressed, think of death and realize you're not dead, and that might be the route to get out of there. Exactly. It was for Eckhart Tolle in his own biography, actually. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, Bob, that I mean, what, what constituted the Buddha's enlightenment, arguably, would be his contemplation on death. He started with the 12th from the Dana. He started with the end and worked. Yes. So, I mean, just to show you how pivotal this is, yes. this reflection on death is what led to the Buddha's actual awakening. Absolutely. Absolutely. He tried to kill himself, even. Tried not to draw another breath, thinking that then he'd find out what was the reality of life. Yeah, amazing. And that's in the esoteric version. Huh. And then, okay. and then he heard finger snaps and looked up, and then there was a beautiful goddess in front of him saying, "Are you trying to choke yourself? <laughs> what are you doing? Huh. Come, take, give yourself a break." 
yeah. connection to the world of life, in other words. Yeah. Okay. Listen, Andrew, it's been great talking to you. I'm really looking forward to you coming to Menla. It's you're, only coming, you're only coming next year? You're not coming this fall? Well, here's the deal, Bob. Um, we're, we're trying to set something up where I make a visit to Tibet House. Um, and then in that case, maybe I can ping up and, and visit with you. But yeah, at this point, we're set up for our, our thing in May. I can't wait to... Oh, okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Been, I'm looking forward to it. I think gonna... I, remember, I remember something. You, you also have, a, you know, have had a taste of the jhanas, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we yeah. met. You may not remember, but we met and hung out a little bit at the Sadra uh, Keystone Conference about five years ago. The night we, right, right. Your, yeah, they, they should hold another one. Yeah, <laughs> totally good. But Bob, I can't thank you enough. In closing, anything else you want people to know about you, your work, how how they can learn? Yes, more? yes. I want. Uh, my wife has finally convinced me, and now that I'm an emeritus, to remember to say that we are the people who have felt blessed enough by the Tibetan people for all of their warts and all, and especially them great lamas like His Holiness Dalai Lama and many others, uh, that we feel that their culture is very, very valuable on this planet at this time of crisis. And therefore, we are trying to keep Tibet House U.S., alive as a kind of seed, um, you know, crucible or preserver, you know, for the seeds of Tibetan culture and to be able to fund Tibetan cultural activities all around the world, ultimately, with our mission. And therefore, we need more members. So please go online and become a member of Tibet House. I think it's 50 bucks or something yearly membership and you get like perks for that you could get a discount when you come to hear andrew and me at menla or at tibet house and we really need people to do that it's very hard everybody's happy to contribute to their church everybody is happy to contribute to save people who are in a you know the refugee crisis and we shouldn't and we're not saying that one penny should be taken away for any of those good things but maybe there are those who feel gratitude to the marvelous culture of the land of snows and therefore wish to see it preserved for the future and can do so can work toward that by working with us at tibet house becoming a member of tibet house putting us in your will yeah, whatever it is that it takes because sort of culture is the last culture is the first thing that people swim in when they grow up but it's the last thing they think to worry about preserving a yeah. good culture especially so so that's what I'm saying, okay, as a closing thing. Yeah, fantastic. Say thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much. It's been a total delight, Bob. I very much look forward to, to spending time with you. And thank you again for taking uh, this. Okay. Uh, all the best. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye now.